we obviously, we adopted our oldest two children. We adopted them from Ethiopia three years ago. And in the process of our adoptive training um, to become their parents, our agency put us through a ton of reading, a ton of seminars, a ton of things to just help learn what it was going to be like to parent these kids. And one of the things that was most valuable for us was learning about this idea of flight. Uh, I always get this wrong. F fight, flight, or freeze. Um, we see this happening with our kids. Any, any kid that has been orphaned or abandoned um, has these uh, gut responses in their bodies. But all of us do to some capacity, depending on the, the measure of trauma that we've experienced in our life. With teenagers, their capacity for fight and flight and freeze is at a really high level. Um, and as they experience new things, scary things, uncharted territory, their bodies will literally go into one of those three modes. My oldest, um, because of the trauma that he has experienced in his life, when he experiences something new or scary or unforeseen, he freezes. He literally doesn't know what to do. He can't go anywhere. He can't speak. He, he, I mean, his eyes just like light up the room. My daughter, uh, because of the trauma that she has experienced, when she has kind of these unknown experiences, she goes into fight mode and she will take down anyone who comes her way. She is angry, she gets loud, and she will fight to the death. Um, our teenagers do the exact same thing. It might not be as, uh, as wild as an animal or as a small child, but their bodies physically will manifest a fight or a flight or a freeze um, when they experience something that is unexpected. And so this is why freedom and boundaries is so significant for us to be able to, to engage with them to maneuver these new experiences that they have in life, whether that is getting a license or in going to a party or in um, meeting someone that they have never met before. New experiences, uncharted territory, will cause these sorts of reactions in our teenagers. And when we see those, it is a good, it's a really good marker um, that they are experiencing something that they need um, some freedom in and also some increased boundaries around. So this is, um, boundaries and freedom is super significant um, in, their, in their development. So probably you're asking like, okay, so how do, we, how do we create those boundaries? What exactly do those boundaries look like? Well, I can't tell you that <laughs> because it's so unique to every single one of our kids. And this is why the engagement is so critical for knowing our kids. Um, I could tell you, okay, here's five rules for what you need to do in order to create some boundaries around your kids. But what that does is that goes into the controlling side of that chart. Instead of engaging and knowing your child and knowing what it is that they need in order um, to continue to have their brain expanding. Um, this is the art of parenting and it is hard work. It is difficult, um, but it is training their brain as you interact with them to grow into being able to experience these new things within a, an increased framework and an increased understanding for the world around them. Um, the next kind of big idea around this is hello abstraction. Um, abstract thinking is maybe the most significant transition that takes place in a teenager's brain during adolescence. Um, my youth ministry passion and kind of primary experience has been with middle school students. 
Um, I adore them. They're my favorite people on the entire planet, which might make me an anomaly or a freak of some sorts, but I adore middle school students. And part of the reason is because of this. It's because of their ability um, to, they're walking into their ability to uh, think abstractly. They're kind of teeter-tottering all the way through adolescence on thinking abstractly and thinking concretely. So if I were to kind of give a little bit of a definition to abstraction, um, the onset, well, let me say this, the onset of abstract thinking, which starts at puberty, is a wonderful, glorious jetpack of seeing the world in a new way. So abstract thinking changes everything. Basically, abstract thinking, in a nutshell, is thinking about thinking, <laughs> which is a very abstract concept. It's the ability to think about thinking. And it has huge implications for everyday life. And something that, as an adult with a brain that is c capable of doing abstract thinking, we don't even think about. But for example, um, children and preteens don't have the ability um, to think abstractly. They, they think in terms of very black and white, full sensory experiences. Um, but teenagers will start to shift in and out of this all the way throughout um, their adolescence. And by the time they reach adulthood, they will fully be abstract thinkers without ever having to go back into this concrete thought. But it can oftentimes feel like one or two steps forward, one step back. And so if you're experiencing some of this with your teenager, just know that that is normal. It's a normal part of their development as they grow and as they exercise this new muscle for them to take uh, two steps forward and one step back. So what are kind of some of these um, implications? What, what is abstract thinking really doing? The first big implication for what abstract thinking does is it helps um, our students, our early teens, with speculation. Speculation is kind of this idea of um, being able, in their brains, with their cognitive capacities, to think what if and to think, why might that be for the first time? So as adults, we, we very much take this for granted. For example, um, if we were maybe looking for a new job, one of the things that we would do, because we're abstract thinkers, is start to think through, what might that job look like? Um, how would it impact my family? Would I have to travel more? What are the financial implications for that? Would this be kind of a step up or moving further down the, the, the road in my dreams and my passions? Or is this taking a step back? What's the work culture going to be like? What would I be losing if I, lo if I leave my current job and go to this new job? As abstract thinking adults, all of these questions almost happen without us really thinking about it. Uh, for teenagers, this is a brand new ability. They have never been able to think like this before. And so all the way through their adolescence, their capacity and their ability and their their strength in doing this is going to increase. It is an incredibly cool deal. So they might be able to possess the ability to do this, but our job is to help them grow in that. So for example, if your teenager is thinking about uh, joining the cross-country team, you can help them think, if you choose cross-country, are you still going to be able to play soccer? or you're not gonna be able to play soccer. If you do cross country, what about your friends that you normally hang out with after school from four until five o'clock? Are you gonna be able to do that? What's gonna to happen to your weekend if you join cross country? How is homework gonna to have to change? Are you gonna have, you're gonna probably have to start doing homework like from eight to 10 p.m. Is that gonna be okay? Are you gonna be more tired? Your ability to help your student, your child walk through those kinds of questions is helping their brain to grow. They don't do this naturally. 
Um, and so as you engage with them and walk them through speculating about the consequences of their choices is an enormous gift that you can give um, to your student. Um, the second kind of big implication for our brains, uh, our teenagers' brains development, is the third-person perspective. Remember Bob Dole saying, hey, I'm Bob Dole. That's what the Bob Dole picture's for. It's a little confusing maybe, but this third-person perspective is another really incredible implication um, for our teenagers that are beginning into this world of abstract thinking. And third-person perspective is really this. It's perceiving yourself or others or the world around you through somebody else's point of view. Kids are naturally entirely narcissistic, right? The whole world revolves around them. Nothing else matters because that is how their brains are functioning. But when teenagers start to experience abstract thinking, this becomes a possibility. It is possible for them to start thinking about what other people think about them. So teenage girls, I mean, hello, this is, makes a lot of sense, right? When it comes to like all of a sudden, they're hyper-focused on themselves, yet beginning to understand what the other people are maybe thinking about them in their peer group, in the lunchroom, what their teachers are thinking, and definitely what you are thinking about them. If you were to line up, for example, um, a nine-year-old girl in front of a mirror, and then you put beside her a 16-year-old girl in front of the mirror, if the nine-year-old girl were to stand in front of that mirror and you asked, what do you see when you look in the mirror? She would probably say, well, I've got blonde hair, and I've got brown eyes, and um, I'm getting a little bit taller than I was before, and I'm wearing a pink shirt, and I've got some flowers on my shoes. And she would give a very specific, like, literal example. It's concrete. She would be giving a concrete description. She might say some characteristics that other people have told her, like, I'm outgoing, or I can see that I really like people. But there's not going to be what the 16-year-old girl sees. If you stand the 16-year-old girl in front of the mirror, she will likely start to download all kinds of things that she is perceiving that other people think about her. She will say, you know, my butt is really big, or I think that I need to lose 10 pounds, or I can see the roots from my last hair coloring, or I, my, my teeth are a little bit jacked up right here. Or there, there will be a much further and more like psychological analysis going on, right? Because they are, they are spitting back out, they are recounting what other people say about them, what other people think about them, instead of just what their individual thought is. And so this third person perspective is a really, really significant and important shift that's taking place. And it, um, it makes a difference too, I think, in terms of how we talk to our kids. Um, I, one of the things just practically that I have done with um, teenage girls in our ministry is I have been very cognizant of making sure that I don't compliment anything physical about them without saying two or three things that are um, much deeper um, around that. Because they are so self-obsessed with their bodies, with their looks, and how they compare to everyone else around them, that just to say, like, I love your shirt, or your hair looks really great today, it's affirming something in them, yes, but it might be going after the wrong types of things. And what they really need to hear is truth about who they are, that you are smart, that you took a really brave stand with your friend at school this week, that you're making really good choices with your boyfriend these days. Um, so as we speak into them, this third-person perspective gets shaped entirely differently. Other implications that I'm going to just kind of go through really quickly. Um, 
they have the capacity now to empathize. Empathy and sympathy are obviously not the same thing. Um, but empathy is the ability to feel what other people feel. This is part of what's developed as when you're third person perspective. Um, abstract thinking makes empathy possible. And so these are really great conversations to have with your, with your teenager of how do you think that other person felt when you said that to them? How do you think it feels if, if a mom has to go to a food stamp line with her kids behind? As you see the world around you, to be able to um, ask questions, to engage and develop their empathy is a really beautiful way to help develop their brain. Paradox. Um, paradox, you know, very simply stated, is the ability to think through two truths that seem in tension with one another. Middle school students are brilliant at noticing paradoxes and of saying, you know, kind of which came first, the chicken or the egg, and asking questions like, do you think God could create a, bi a rock big enough that he couldn't um, carry on his own? Like, they love to kind of throw out these ideas of paradox, of, of two truths that remain in tension with each other. And one of the beautiful things about paradox is how it impacts the development of faith and spirituality in our kids. And this is a part um, where I've seen so many parents freak out about their kids' faith because all of a sudden they're asking these questions that don't seem to make sense. They're, they're looking at parts of the Bible and going, well, God said to murder all of the enemies, but then, in the, but then here in the New Testament it says, do not kill, or thou shalt not kill, or Jesus is talking about how you shouldn't hurt anybody, you should turn the other cheek. So this doesn't make sense to me. And so helping students put these two paradoxes together um, is a really huge and beautiful way to help them work through faith issues and their faith development. Um, and really, the last thing here is that the other implications, it's, it's everything else. Every single thing when it comes to our teenagers is implicated by their ability to think abstractly. Um, it's a beautiful and huge um, change. So abstract um, thinking, when it comes to this everything else category, um, it's at the root of why your teenager seems so emotional. It's at the root of why friendships start changing. You know, elementary school friends are maybe entirely different from your middle school friends or your high school friends. Um, it's the starting point for the separation between you and their own independence. And it's the source code for your teenager moving towards sustainable and mature faith. All of these things are the result of abstract thinking. Are we not fearfully and wonderfully made? It's an incredible thing what happens to our brains um, at this period of time. So here's what we're going to kind of talk about next is all this everything else uh, category. The trickle-down effect. So what happens with the onslaught <laughs> of sorts of abstract thinking? What happens? Why do they do the things that they do? Well, with abstract thinking and emotions, um, you probably wish at some points, especially if you have a teenage girl in your home, that you could go back to those beautiful and wonderful days when everything was so much cleaner and non-dramatic and non-emotional and just freak out every couple of days, right? Like there were such simpler times than what happens with teenage girls, particularly um, with abstract thinking. But now that you have a teenager in your house, there are some really significant things that happen with their emotions and abstract thinking. I like to think about it like this. Um, think of a painter's palette. In childhood, a painter's palette might have the primary colors and maybe black and white on it. And kids know how to paint with those colors. They can say, I am happy, I am sad, I am angry. Um, 
But when a teenager starts to develop this abstract thinking, that palette of a handful of colors now becomes the entire color wheel of every shade and every color of the rainbow. And they not only know how to, to, to paint with a primary color, but they're mixing all of these colors together and trying to make sense of what all of these emotions are. So if you have a teenage boy in your home and sometime you ask them, what are you feeling right now? And they say, I don't know. That's a true thing. They're not necessarily hiding anything from you. They truly don't know how to interpret their emotions. And so as parents, one of the gifts that you can give them is, is just asking questions and letting the silence um, sit for them to just talk and begin to express their feelings and their thoughts um, because they are creating a whole new different kind of picture with all kinds of different colors. And it's a God-given thing. It is a beautiful thing, but they need help to interpret those things. Um, one of my favorite verses is John 10.10. 10. I actually have uh, the Greek word tattooed on my wrist, um, the word life. And I think what happens is that in childhood, we have this black and white kind of life. But Jesus says in John 10 that he has come to give us a rich and meaningful life, the fullest life that we can possibly imagine. And I, I imagine that as a technicolor kind of life. It's not black and white. It's not the four primary colors. It is a million different colors and shades of the rainbow. And that gets to be expressed in our emotions and experienced in our emotions. And so in order for us to do that, we've got to be able to experience and express all of those different types of emotions um, and help our students to grow in that. The second big thought um, is abstract thinking and relationships. Relationships are another huge, huge, huge thing that changes um, with abstract thinking. One of uh, my favorite shows is Survivor. Does anyone watch Survivor in the room? I swear, I never know, I, I don't know anyone else who watches Survivor other than maybe you now and you. Um, I don't know anyone, none of my friends watch it, so I don't know how it's still on the air. But it's one of my favorite shows. And I think that if you put a group of 12-year-olds into the room, it's oftentimes like that first episode on the, the season of Survivor, where you put everybody on an island, and all of a sudden, everyone is sizing up everyone and making ideas and assumptions and drawing conclusions about one another. That is what is happening with teenagers. Um, they are constantly evaluating potential threats and alliances and wondering if they're going to be like that first person voted out of the island or where they're going to sit in the context of relationships. And um, the, their relationships changing from elementary to middle school and high school is a really significant shift. Um, there's three kind of big factors when it comes to these shifts uh, in adolescence and with their relationships. The big three factors are individuation, affinity, and again, third-person perspective. Individuation is the process of becoming one's own self, um, separated from you, separated from family. And as a teenager begins to individuate, um, they become more and more aware of their own uniquenesses and their values and their preferences. And so that has friendship implications. The second one is affinity. Um, affinity is one of the three primary tasks of adolescence. The other two are um, identity and autonomy. But affinity asks this question, asks this question, to whom and where do I belong? To whom and where do I belong? Critical questions. 
um, the answer to this question gives them the shot, the possibility of being an interdependent adult as to whether or not they are going to belong to people, um, belong to a tribe, or if they're going to find themselves um, out on the island all by themselves. It's a, a hugely abstract question. So it, it pushes them when it comes to what kinds of friends they're going to be choosing and who they're going to be relating to. The, and then the last one is this third-person perspective. Um, it's one of the biggies that we've already talked about a couple of times, but this is the ability, again, to perceive yourself from another person's point of view. And so that implicates who they're going to choose to be friends with. Does this person think that I'm cool? Do they think that I'm kind? Do they think that I have value within the group? And so where they find the answers to those questions is going to determine who their friends are and who they're going to be spending time with. Very significant. The next big area is the abstract thinking and our independence. Um, while your, your child has always had kind of their unique personality and preferences to things, this becomes heightened in adolescence. Um, kids typically, children typically resemble their parents in very significant and largely based ways. And when teenagers become teenagers and abstract thinking happens, they want to start separating themselves from their parents, right? So you see this everywhere from I don't want to look like you to I don't want to dress like you to I don't want to vote for the same political party as you do. I don't want to have the same faith as you. There is a pulling apart, and that is natural, and that is good, and that is important for their development. But your goal, remember, is to help create them into becoming an interdependent adult. Not that they are off on an island on Survivor by their own, but that you are allowing them space, tethering them to you, really, and letting go a little bit at a time to let them experience to greater degrees of fullness their own uniquenesses and the ways that God has specifically created them. Um, we're going to finish this part pretty quickly because we've got to move on to a, a part that we want to hear from Marco. But this last kind of big area is when it comes to abstract thinking and faith. Um, I want to I wanna give you guys a little bit of a test can you handle it? Are you ready? Saturday night? I don't know how long it's been since you've been in school. But I want to give you a test to um, have you pick out on this list the concrete, non-abstract ideas out of this list. No cheating, no talking aloud. Just quietly read it on your own and see if you can pick out the concrete, non-abstract ideas. All right, any thoughts? Yeah. Jesus saves us is a concrete, non-abstract thought. Anybody else have an idea? There are no concrete thoughts. You win. Yeah. There's nothing up there. Sorry, it's a trick question. I know, I totally put you on the spot. <laughs> Baited and switched you into that. There's actually nothing up there that is concrete, that is non-abstract. Actually, with faith, Nothing is concrete. Um, so when your child, when your teenager starts to freak out about the stories that they heard in Sunday school and going, this doesn't make sense anymore. My faith doesn't make sense anymore. It's true. It doesn't make sense to them anymore. They are having to unpack and kind of discard and reassemble their faith now that they have the capacity to think abstractly. All of our faith is abstract. And so as 
um, as our children grow up and start to like kind of manage in this world of abstract thinking, when they experience doubt, when they experience um, a conflict with a perceived conflict within scripture, those are not bad things. It's actually a sign of their development at work. It's a sign of their faith growing and increasing. Um, we've got some friends over at this organization called the Barefoot Ministries, and they are a great youth resourcing um, organization. And they talked about this progression of faith that I think is really helpful as we think about our childhood, childhood faith becoming more mature. They say we move kind of in this progression from simplicity, a childlike faith or a childish faith is probably a better distinction, where they can hear a Bible story and go, okay, that's what it means. You know, Noah built the ark, and, that's, and so this is what the whole story means. To move from that into complexity, that faith um, is not necessarily all that it was when I was a child, and our belief is more complex than maybe we thought that it was when we were eight years old. And then we move into this, this stage of perplexity. We get to a point where there's at least some things that are really perplexing, like a paradox, right? This is where teenagers' faith is kind of living in, this, this difference between, or this transition between complexity and perplexity. And then the hope and the dream and the ideal and the goal is that we move into a mature faith, an adult faith, that is humility, where we go, we don't have all of the answers. We don't know all of the mysteries of God. But these are the things that we still hold to be true, or these are the, the ways that we exercise and work out of our faith because of what we have experienced and know of who God is. So when our teenagers experience this complexity or this perplexity, know that it's good. Don't push them back into the simplicity of their faith and say, well, the Bible says it, and so just believe it. Um, don't push them back into childhood where they are just understanding the Bible stories from their Sunday school, but allow them, engage with them again as their faith becomes more complex and then becomes a little bit more perplexed. It's not about them losing their faith. It's actually a development of their faith that is taking place in that season. So we actually want to move right now into um, hearing a little bit more from Marco. And so if you could turn your attention back to the video and get a few words from him. Marco here. I'm excited to talk about this last section of our training today, and we're going to talk about some new research that's uh, been done in the last, some new discoveries from the last 10 or 12 years uh, about teenage brains that's just absolutely fascinating and I believe has big impacts on parenting. I know it has impacted my own parenting uh, of my own kids. By the way, my, my son is 16 years old. He's a sophomore in high school, and my daughter is 20 years old. She's uh, a freshman in college after taking a gap year and traveling the world for a year. Uh, so I'm still very much in the midst of this stuff, and I, and I work with the middle schoolers at my church, so I'm regularly interacting with 7th and 8th grade kids, specifically with the guys. So here's the deal. For hundreds of years, the entire medical and scientific community around the whole world had a, an enormous misunderstanding about brains, particularly brains in teenagers and children. For hundreds of years, they all commonly believed that the human brain was fully developed on average by age six or seven years old. Uh, they believed that it still grew in size and speed and functionality and things, but that all the piece parts were there by six or seven years old. And it wasn't until a dozen or so years ago with the wide acceptance and use of the MRI that we started to have safe, 
ways to look at uh, healthy living teenage and child brains. Prior to that, it was considered, for some reason, unethical to uh, look at healthy teenage brains or children's brains. Uh, people didn't commonly open up the skulls of children and look at their brains. We had lots of information about adult brains, but the only real information we had about children's and teenage brains were those that were in autopsies after death or during brain surgery, and really the point of that uh, exposure to the brain wasn't to study it. Uh, and so there was this huge misunderstanding. And it wasn't until we started to really look at healthy, live teenage brains that we discovered something fascinating. Big shock to the entire medical and scientific community, and it was this. The brain is not fully developed until oh, about 25 years old, the mid-20s on average. That prior to that, it's not just that it's slower or still changing or shifting in some ways. There's literally parts of it that are not yet grown in. Uh, and that that process continues throughout the teenage years. Well, this was a big shock and it uh, started to be studied more and reported more and more and more. We started to see articles written on this both in scientific journals and then reaching more into popular media. And let me tell you some of the significant uh, summaries of this. To start with, one of the areas of the brain that are underdeveloped in teenagers are the temporal lobes. That's a blank on your handouts. The temporal lobes are on the side of the head. The brain has uh, four lobes times two, so eight altogether, but we usually talk about them in matched pairs. And on the side are the temporal lobes. Now, the temporal lobes are responsible for, among other things, emotional interpretation and understanding. And so when you see a junior higher or a high schooler living in your home who seems to be missing out on understanding and interpreting emotions, there's a physiological reason for that. They're still struggling with growing into the ability to really understand and interpret emotions. Uh, it, it's, it's almost like there's a psychological test that's uh, commonly given to people for emotional understanding. And it, I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's say it's 10 placards, 10 little cards or digital images of a face, a human face, making a clear emotion. This would be a, a picture of somebody, and you would say happy, and, or maybe you'd just say stupid looking, right? But happy, and then you'd see another one and you'd say sad or depressed, right? Uh, and if I showed these 10 pictures to you uh, adults, the women in the room would probably get nine or 10 of them right. The men in the room would probably get eight or nine right. Men tend to be a little bit behind uh, women always in emotional understanding and interpretation. But if we showed those to, let's say, a group of 15-year-old girls, they would get, uh, this is just ballparking here, five out of 10 right. And if you showed it to a group of 15-year-old boys, this is not a gross exaggeration. They would get maybe two out of 10 right. They really struggle to understand and interpret emotions. Part of that is because their brains are still developing and they're underdeveloped temporal lobes. And added to that, April talked earlier about uh, their new ability to think abstractly and emotional interpretation and understanding is an abstract thought process. So they're kind of doubly struggling with that. Let me give you an example of it. Um, I was sitting in my junior high guys small group last year, and I had uh, this circle of guys, and it was at the end of our discussion time, and we were sharing prayer requests. And one of the guys, Ben, spoke up, and he said, 
I'm, I want you to pray for me because when I go home tonight, my older brother's going to be there, and I haven't seen him in two years. And I knew this kid, and I knew his family, and I had no idea there was even an older brother. And so I was kind of surprised, and I was, I was like, you're brother? Where, where did this brother come from? And ben, on, ben went on to share through very strong emotion. He said, well, my brother got really hooked on drugs. He's a few years older than me. Um, and he went in and out of rehab, but he, he, went, he went back into drugs and eventually he got kicked out of our home and he was living on the streets for a while, but he's cleaned his act up and he's going to be home when I get there tonight. And as Ben was sharing this, this news and this this prayer request, his emotion was so strong. Any of us adults would have instantly picked up on it, and most of my guys did too, because it was so obvious. He was right on the edge of crying, and he was holding it back. It was, it was palpable, right? And all of us, I mean, I was leaning in to be present to Ben in this space as he was sharing this very emotionally sensitive piece of information, right? This request for prayer. And he was holding back this emotion. And then Mitch over here on the side speaks up before I can say anything. And he says, well, what you need to do when you get home, the first thing you need to do is tell your brother drugs are stupid. Now, you know, I had to restrain myself a little bit, right? Because it was so inappropriate and uh, out of left field, right, for, for Mitch to speak up like this. But my understanding of Mitch's underdeveloped temporal lobes gives me a sense of patience and the ability to notice what's going on here. And so in that moment, I realize I need to act as Mitch's a surrogate temporal lobe. That's one of our roles as parents of teenagers, right? Is to be their surrogate temporal lobes, to help them, especially if you have boys, to help them notice and understand and interpret emotions, both in other people as well as their own. And so I turned and I said to Mitch, Mitch, that's totally right. Drugs are stupid, but I want you to notice what's going on here. Ben is sharing something with us that's very important to him. And you can see if you look at his face that there's a strong emotion that he's feeling right now. So let's not talk about drugs right now as much as what's going on with Ben in this moment. And now Mitch is able to see what's going on. It's not that he lacks capacity, and this is a critical thing for us to understand. It's not that teenagers are lacking in all capacity for emotional understanding and interpretation. It's that they're underdeveloped in that area, and they struggle with it. So we can really serve a, a wonderful role of ministering to our own kids when we help them make those connections and exercise those parts of their brains so that they can grow in that area. The second part of the teenage brain that's significantly underdeveloped are the frontal lobes. It's technically called the prefrontal cortex, but we refer to them as the frontal lobes. And it's right here behind the forehead. Now, the frontal lobes are commonly called the brain's CEO or the brain's executive office or the decision-making center of the brain because it's the part of the brain that, in which all higher-order thinking takes place. It's really the part of the brain that significantly separates us from every other animal. Okay. Now, you see on your handout there's a list of some, not all, some of the functions of the frontal lobes. It, it, it's responsible for things like decision-making and wisdom and, and 
uh, prioritization and impulse control and, and planning and organization and focus. You could almost inverse those and say that a lack of those things is a definition of teenagers in some ways. Well, the reality is that teenagers are struggling because they are limited, physiologically limited, not incapable, but limited in their ability to make good decisions, to prioritize, to control their impulses, and other things like this. Really, all kind of wisdom uh, functions. And so, when you ask your son, why? Tell me why. What were you thinking when you thought it would be cool to light your trash can on fire? And he says, I don't know. Well... <laughs> he might be giving you a genuine and honest answer. He didn't know. He wasn't really processing it, whereas you and I as adults would tend to think about implications and motive and all kinds of things like that. He just thought this would be cool, and he wasn't really thinking through the implications. So that may be a very genuine and honest answer. Now, I, I want to be really clear about some of this stuff because this has started to get very widely reported and maybe you've heard this reported in some way or read about it in a newspaper or a magazine or heard it on the news. I've seen this show up in everywhere from an Allstate ad uh, for, for car insurance that, that said, does it ever seem like teenagers when they're driving are missing a part of their brain? And it had a cute little uh, cartoon drawing of a brain with a little puzzle piece in the shape of a car that was missing and then underneath it said that's because they are and it went to summarize saying teenagers can't make good decisions and I think the point was that's why we charge you so much for your teenagers car insurance right I've seen it show up in, in young adult fiction books where one a, a very popular book that I was reading a couple years ago by a popular young adult fiction author the first line of it was why did my friend think that it was okay to drive when she was drunk well it's because her brain doesn't allow her to make good decisions that was like the very first sentences of this book and I've seen it in all kinds of magazines and newspaper articles and stuff too but here's the problem so much of the way that this information about teenagers and their decision-making in their brains has been reported in the popular media has been about see what we've discovered is Teenagers are incapable of making good decisions. Therefore, our role as a society and as parents and as schools is to protect them, to draw the boundaries in even closer. This is a process that's, that psychologists call infantilization. It's treating teenagers or anyone as if they were children. And we've seen a huge pendulum swing in our culture over the last decade, uh, moving more and more and more toward treating teenagers as if they were children. In fact, teenagers today have more than 10 times as many restrictions and limitations as do teenagers from 100 years ago. In fact, they have more than two times as many restrictions and limitations as do incarcerated criminals. Uh, now, you might think teenagers today have all kinds of freedoms that you didn't have, but in general, our culture is moving more and more to, reading that, to treating them as if they're children, and parenting, parenting pendulum has swung too, and you might feel this. I regularly feel pressure from our culture to treat my own children as if they were my own teenagers, as if they were little children, to protect them, to keep them happy, to keep them safe. And maybe that comes from a good impulse, maybe. Uh, but the problem is it's not accurate. And it's actually harming our kids because they're at a point in life when they need more freedom. They need to experiment. In fact, 
I, I got challenged recently by a, a brilliant kind of theologian who had also studied teenage brain science. And, and he brought up this phrase that wasn't his. He borrowed it from somebody else, but I found it so helpful. He said, we need to wrestle with, do we in our homes, in our churches, do we see teenagers as a problem to be solved or as a wonder to behold? Oh, that's just beautiful framing for me and my parenting. I want to see my 16-year-old son as a wonder to behold. And so it takes me with, through my Christian worldview back to creation. What was God's intention in designing teenage brains? Even the scientific community that wouldn't necessarily put this through a Christian lens uh, is, has shifted their approach. They're not talking about limitations or lack of capability or capacity anymore. They're talking about why this exists. What are the positive opportunities of this? And they're suggesting that it's possible, and in fact, even likely, that teenagers are limited in their decision-making and in their risk-taking, uh, in, uh, in their, their decision to measure, their ability to measure risk or uh, impulse control or prioritization in order to take more risks so that they can learn about the world in ways that you and I, as adults, would tend to be more cautious and shut down learning. And so, a wonder to behold, right? I want to encourage you to hold on to that, to not think of your teenager as lacking in capability or capacity. The third finding that I want to talk to you about today uh, is, I get all excited about this. I, I just think it's so cool, and I, I, I think it, it has huge implications, again, for my parenting, as well as the youth ministry work that I do. It's this finding. Prior to puberty, in the two years leading up to puberty, so think the preteen years, think 8 to 10 or 9 to 11 years old, the brain goes into a growth frenzy, growing millions of additional neurons, millions more than will be there in adulthood. Now the brain, the human brain, we don't know the exact amount, but it has billions of neurons. So this is still only a portion of the neurons in the brain, but it grows millions of additional neurons. Neurons are the electrical wiring of the brain. It's how information moves around the brain. And bundled together, we refer to them as neural pathways. And those are the information superhighways of the brain. Now, millions of additional neurons are grown prior to puberty. And at puberty, a toggle switch is tripped and the process reverses itself. And in the two to four years following the onset of puberty, so think the young teen years extending into the middle teen years, 11 to 15, somewhere in there, 11 to 16 maybe, the brain goes through a, a winnowing process and it eliminates, it culls back, it cuts back millions of neurons, returning it to the, the number that it had prior to that growth frenzy. But the really interesting part of this is how those neurons are chosen for elimination. It's not the same ones that were added. The lead researcher on teenage brains in America is a guy named Jay Geed, and he's like the head of teenage brain neurology and scans or something like that at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. He calls it a use it or lose it principle. In fact, Jay Geed goes on to say that it's during the young and middle teen years that the brain is hardwired, that's his term, not mine, hardwired for how it will function and process information for the rest of life. Those neurons and neural pathways that are heavily used during the young and middle teen years get to stay in play for the rest of life. And those that aren't used are literally dismantled. They're not just put into a dormant state that could be revised or revived later on. Instead, they're literally taken apart and dismantled. 
And so the brain, again, in Jay Geed's words, is hardwired. Now, you've been learning maybe uh, sometime in your reading over the last year, there's been a lot of new discoveries about the brain's plasticity and how we can continue to grow and learn. So I'm not saying that we shut down learning or new ways of thinking or that you can't experience some new perspective or uh, an epiphany or anything like that at all. But there is some sense to which the brain is kind of calcified uh, scientists probably wouldn't like that word, but hardened into a certain way of thinking and processing information. In other words, uh, a young teen who plays a crazy amount of soccer during her young teen years hardwires her brain for the thought processes necessary to play soccer. That doesn't mean she's necessarily going to be good at soccer because it involves lots of other things too. But the thought processes necessary for that get wired into place. Or a, a, a guy, a young teen guy who plays tons of first-person shooter games during his young teen years, hardwires his brain for those brain functions. Not all bad, by the way. Some of that would include hand-eye coordination and quick impulse uh, you know, a response time and even some guessing of what's going to happen next, kind of that projecting a little bit. All of those kinds of functions as well as, I'm sure, some destructive hardwiring also. Well, this, for me, is a big question then. As a parent, I know from research, more than from my own experience, I know I'm an enormous influence on the life of my teenager. I know that I have a responsibility. And so learning about this neuron wiring, this hard wiring, this uh, winnowing that's taking place, it draws up a question of stewardship. We often talk about stewardship in the, when we're referring to how we use our financial resources. But this is a parenting stewardship question. There are plenty of other forces and voices that are shaping my own kids' brains, right? The media and the world that they live in, the values of our extended community, hopefully their church, our church and their youth ministry and their youth leaders, uh, as well as media and TV and other things and their peer group and their teachers. But I know I have a significant role in shaping, for example, who my son Max is becoming and in the hard wiring of his brain, which at 16 is pretty much done. Uh, and, and so it draws, draws up a question of stewardship. How do I steward the opportunity that I have to hardwire his brain, and I would say for a lifetime of faith? I, I'm not really interested when I think about it from a stewardship perspective, I'm not really interested in Max being able to always repeat back the correct answers. I'd like him to have correct answers, but that's not how I'm interested in hardwiring his brain. I'm much more interested in helping Max hardwire his brain for a lifetime of wrestling and asking questions and processing his doubts and feeling that it's a good thing to pursue more truth and better truth. And that that kind of dialogue and pursuit of truth is how I'd love to see his brain hardwired for a way that will sustain his faith well into and through his young adult years and into adulthood. Just a couple final thoughts for you as we wrap, wrap up this brain section and I toss back to April for some Q&A time. First, I've said this already, but I want to say it again. Please do not mishear me. I am not suggesting, and the research is not suggesting, 
although media may be suggesting that your teenager is incapable. That is not proved in the research at all. In fact, I think just the opposite. They are uniquely capable in certain ways. They are wired for passion and for experiencing things and trying things in ways that you and I would often be more reserved. Let's think about that as a wonder to behold. The other thing that I want to remind you of, or tell you of if you didn't realize this before we wrap, is this. Research has shown over and over and over again, you are the number one influence in the life of your teenager. For good or for ill, that is true. Every parent of every teenager is the number one influence. It's over and over and over and over again we see it. And this has been studied again and again. It doesn't feel like it, right? The presenting evidence as a parent is my kid is much more influenced these days by their peer group or uh, by the friends they hang out with or by uh, the movies or the music that they see or whatever. But I'll be honest, that's the surfacey stuff. The clothes they wear and the music they listen to and stuff like that, that's the surfacey stuff. The real deeper stuff, their values their beliefs, their thought processes, whether they're in line with you or in reaction to you, you are the number one influence in the life of your kid. And so I just want to encourage you to own that responsibility, to own that opportunity that you get to be involved, stay engaged, make sure that you keep lines of communication open. My daughter has made some choices over the last few years that we've struggled with a little bit. And I've realized if all I do is come out in some way of condemning her and alienating myself from her, thereby cutting off engagement and conversation, I've forfeited my opportunity to really have an ongoing impact in her life. And I refuse to do that. Stay engaged. Be involved with your kids. Foster conversation and positive memories together. Blessings on you. So we have a few minutes left, and there has been a lot of things that have been thrown in your direction, probably some a little bit overwhelming and other things that have been affirming. But we want to spend the last few minutes that we have together uh, with an opportunity for you to ask some questions. And maybe I'll have some answers, maybe I won't, but we want to provide that space. And so um, Graham and Dave have microphones in the back, and they would love to pass them your way, and we would love to have a, a conversation wrapping up here about what you heard tonight, what you need to understand a little bit more, what wasn't clear, um, or what maybe God spoke into you. So yes, man who got the question right, the trick question. Wait, microphone's got to come your way, because I think we're getting this on podcast. A um, bit of a preface. It seems to me that one of the main um, pressures on us as parents is the peer pressure that we have mm. of other Christian parents <laughs> who disapprove or we think will disapprove of the actual mm -hmm. behavior of our children in the moment. And, and, what, and what you guys seem to be saying is that we have to be playing a much longer game here. Yeah. Uh, and, and how would you suggest, I mean, in, uh, personally I think that that, that that disapproval is Phariseeism. And, mm -hmm. and so in my, in my heart of hearts I would reject it. But sure. how, would you, how would you suggest dealing with the disapproval of our own peers when yeah. we give our children the freedom to fail and the freedom to do things that yep. embarrass us? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That is a brilliant question, and I'm so glad that that's the first question thrown out there. Um, my two immediate thoughts 
Um, the first one was, there's this song, this very, very old 90s worship song from Willow Creek that when I was there. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> from a couple of decades ago. Um, and the song is called Audience of One. And I have, um, I'm running my first half marathon tomorrow morning in L.A., and um, I have, that song has been in my brain. I'm, I'm running with Team World Vision. I'm running for clean water for kids in Africa. And um, I have been very emotional this week about that choice. It's, it's a very long journey for me to even get to this place to run this half marathon tomorrow morning. But I've been listening to that song and weeping over the past couple of days because at the end of the day, I have an audience of one. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. And of course, those things impact me. Of course I care what people think. And I think when it comes to parenting, there's nothing more personal than our parenting, right? And so um, that has been such a good reminder for me this week of I have an audience of one. Only his approval counts when all is said and done. Um, and this is my prayer when the race is finally won. I want to hear well done from an audience of one. So that would be my first word of encouragement. The second is there's this book that I just finished reading. Um, it's a very popular book. Probably several of you have read it, many of you. Um, it's by Brene Brown, and it's called Daring Greatly. And the entire book is on um, connectivity, vulnerability, and shame. And it is her hypothesis and her research has shown that um, those who shame the most are the ones who have been shamed. Those who are the least vulnerable are the ones who have not been shown vulnerability or ex has, have experienced vulnerability themselves. And I think that that happens with parenting is that when we feel threatened in our own parenting choices, when we feel insecure about our parenting choices, we will project that as quickly as possible. And so what may be um, judged upon you isn't about you at all, it's about them, um, and isn't necessarily has anything to do with what Jesus has for your family. And so um, I would highly recommend that book. It's brilliant and beautiful and practical. She talks about parenting. Um, she actually has this manifesto in the back called wholehearted parenting that I literally like sobbed <laughs> reading through it. Um, so that would be uh, more of a word of encouragement than anything else. Um, yeah. Brene, B-R-E-N-E, has a little something accent over her E. Brene Brown. Thank you, April. Daring greatly. Daring greatly. Yes, sorry. I um, just wanted to just throw a couple of things out there and just get your general feel and um, and just your your overall perspective. Sure. Um, are you familiar with the work of of some um, parenting training um, kind of principles called "Growing Kids God's Way"? I for am. one. I am. Mm -hmm. And then two, um, "Bringing Up Girls" by James Dobson uh -huh. and "Bringing Up Boys" by James Dobson. Yep. And how does how does what we're talking about tonight integrate uh, or or doesn't integrate with yeah. that those perspectives? And just from a 10,000-foot from a level. Right, from just kind of philosophical overarching. Um, I know most about growing kids God's way from the criticism and from the press releases about children that have, been, um, that have died as a result of some of those extreme practices. So I, I've not read actually any of those three books. Um, I, and I know kind of from the, from the big picture media stuff about what has been communicated about those things. And the Dobson books I know are, are much older um, so I don't know that I could give a good enough, fair enough reflection of, of those three things. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to lie. I don't want to make something up or misrepresent. Um, maybe let's go back there first. 
in the video, he said that 11 to 15 is when the brain is winnowing out. Mm -hmm. The neurons is going to keep. So this might be a simple thing. So should parents be putting puzzles and really hard concepts in front of their children during this time to try and keep those ideas cemented in them? It's more about exposure than it is about cementing. The cementing happens post-15. So the exposure, the, the um, I, I know some parents that do like rite of passage experiences for their kids at that age, or they'll, they'll, they'll do traveling and those kinds of experiences that are outside of their everyday normative routines. So it's more about exposure and um, creating new things than it is about cementing. The cementing happens post-15. Yeah. Somebody, there was a couple other hands like right up here. There's hand way in the front. Run, run. Um, I have four kids. Woo! <laughs> God bless you. 25, 22, 18, and then 15. I love that you are here for your last child. Yes. Like, you are an expert by all means, and you are still here. That is commendable. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, the first three are girls. They're very independent. Um, 25's been out of the house. The 18 and the 22 are very independent. Um, I've done, I feel like, everything that I was supposed to do. Uh -huh. um, they're have really easy, great kids. The 15-year-old is a boy, so it's very new. And I have to tell you, just sitting here, I have learned so Good. much. Because the silence. Mm. Girls aren't really silent, but he is. Mm -hmm. And I get so frustrated. Yeah. So, And I did do the Growing Kids God's Way. It's a 20-week course, and I absolutely loved it. It was great. Yeah, great it was job. great. And I did it 100 years ago. Um, <laughs> well, 25 maybe. Yeah, and so I don't know. It's He's been my struggle, mm -hmm. but he's he's got a great yeah. walk with God. He goes every Wednesday. We go here, and then on Wednesdays he goes with his friends to um, I'm nervous. Another church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so, um, and then he also does Athletes for Christ at school, Yeah, and he goes to Woodbridge, but I'm very blessed with that, and I'm a single mom now, mm. so I am scared, and I am nervous for him, because I feel like he's going to fall over the edge, mm. but I've seen nothing that says that, mm. but I just wanted to really compliment you tonight, because I've learned so Good. much. I'm so glad. And one funny thing is, my daughter was asking me about an outfit when you were talking about that, and she's 22, and she lives on she's her coming own. back around. And I just had to laugh because they still come to me for yeah. all those things. Yeah, so that's awesome. Anyway, that's awesome. That's and with our boys, it doesn't mean that those emotions don't exist. They just take a little bit longer, um, oftentimes, to pry out. And I also think we have to be really careful as we talk about gender differences because um, they're not. They're not across the board, and they're not clean cut, and they're not super strong always. And so I think we have to be really careful to be like, boys don't have emotions and are stoic, and girls are so emotional and dramatic, because that, that can be really harmful and hurtful, actually, in our kids' development, because we say girls are supposed to be this way and boys are supposed to be this way. And when they're not, it, it, is, a, it is a wounding deal for them. We have time for a couple more, I think. Any other questions? Yeah. But um, Dr. Michael Thompson, he wrote Raising Cain. Oh, yeah. He was, he was here recently in Orange County late last year, and he has a um, special interest in boys. Yeah. And so even though his books, some of his books are written for boys and girls, you may just want to Google Dr. Michael Thompson. Um, 
there is a book called It's a Boy, of course, Raising Cain. Yep. And his latest book is about, has pressure in the title. And what I thought was very interesting is not only understanding the brain of a teenager, but just understanding middle schoolers and high schoolers and what they go through. Yeah. And in this book, and when, when I listened to him speak last year, at no time did he make judgments about the parents and everything yeah, they were going huge. through. What Good. he would do in response is just tell it from the perspective of the middle schooler and high schooler. Mm. And I became so much more sympathetic, yeah, realizing absolutely. like, oh my goodness, this is what they go through. Yeah, that's so great. And that's such a that's such our heart, and even in this this time together, is to add sympathy for our, our kids, our, our teenagers. It is hard to be them. Parenting is difficult, yes. It is harder when you're learning all of this stuff and desperately needing for someone to kind of walk you through this and engage with you. So I hope that that has expanded your capacity tonight. Is the woo, you're good, is you're good. I like it strong. <laughs> that you went over in his books. Yes, totally. Yeah, we right there. Yes. So Parents getting that understanding. book is the, it, and it has everything already I don't know that it has everything. I haven't read his book. <laughs> what? Um, we've worked on this together. <laughs> I haven't read it. But I'm sure we have, the content of this has been taken from the book. So probably isn't everything, but it's worth getting. Oh, I got it. Oh, we got it. Yeah, I got awesome. it. Awesome. On it. The, um, Marco Stryker. Yep, the guy on the video wrote the book. And they actually, um, the Youth Cartel is who I work with and who Marco, Marco founded the Youth Cartel. And they have a whole series on um, a parent's guide. And so they're super helpful. Practical little books, which are even better. What's the last name? Marco. O-Striker. O-E-S-T-R-E-I-C-H-E-R. But you'll notice them in, in your bookstore here. All right, one more. One last question. Anybody else with a burning? Oh, the sure, yes. Um, there you go. Yeah, sorry that wasn't on the notes. I, I went a little bit rogue on our keynote presentation and I did this on my own, so. All right, well, let's, I'm gonna have Justin come on up and wrap up our time together. Thank you guys so much for having me and Marco via video. It's a gift to be with you all tonight. This was great. I am so uh, thrilled. The turnout and uh, the, all the questions you asked were great. We recorded this whole thing. So if you want to be able to listen to it later, uh, we're going to be putting it up on our Junior High Ministry uh, Mariners podcast. So we'd love for you to download that and check it out. Um, like she said, our books that we have on all of our parenting stuff is in the bookstore here at the, uh, at the Mariners Cafe. So there's a whole parenting section. Stop down anytime uh, and check it out. Uh, we do these learning labs why once every four or five months. So we're going to set the next one pretty soon. And I hope you guys come up to that one too. It would be great. So thanks so much for coming. I hope you guys have a great night. If you have any questions about the church or anything, some of our staff will be back here uh, to meet you and whatnot. Have, you guys have a great night, and uh, we'll see you next time.